Welcome to Real World Talk, a podcast that brings together healthcare leaders to discuss the importance of real world data in accelerating drug development and improving cancer care. Real World Talk is brought to you by CODA, a company that combines oncology expertise with advanced technology and analytics to create clarity from fragmented and often inaccessible real world data. Welcome to another episode of the Real World Talk podcast with Coda. And today I am joined by Carla Bagali from Deloitte. How are you doing, Carla? I'm good. How are you? Good. Today, you know, we've worked with Deloitte in a number of different ways, and Carla has collaborated with us in a number of pieces. And today, you know, we wanted to talk a bit about the most recent paper and report that Deloitte Insights put out on real-world evidence use. It's something that, well, I guess, Carla, I'll let you kind of explain what this effort was about. Yeah, sure. So I, I work with pretty much all of the top pharma and smaller pharma, as well as, you know, data partners and everything in between to help out with, you know, strategy, access to data, operating models, technology build out, the list can go on and on. And so a few years ago, we were thinking, you know, how do you actually follow the market, figure out what's happening? And pretty much everybody always asks us, Deloitte, like, you know, where do I stand? How are my capabilities against other capabilities in market? Who's leading? What does it mean to be leading? And so we decided to put together this survey. So our first survey launched in 2017. Since then, we have done four surveys, so almost every year. And through that, we felt the different trends of what's been happening in this space. And really, it's become an industry standard piece, which is awesome. We started off with, you know, just a point of interest. And uh, now it's fun to get, you know, the request of when's the next paper coming out? I can't wait to see it. And so this paper like I said, captures everything from what's happening. What are the data trends? Where's the money going? Are teams growing? What technologies should you consider? And all of those tough things. I think it's really great, especially to see that continuity year over year, right? As the rural evidence yeah. space is changing so rapidly still. And so I think maybe I'll just jump right in to one of the, you know, kind of conclusions, I guess, coming out of this year's report is that we feel that Real-world evidence, the evolution of the usage of real-world evidence has really reached an end-to-end capability now, right? If you look at maybe five years ago or even further, it was really more so contained to HEOR organizations that are trying to do kind of some post-marketing studies, right? Just understand what's happening in, in the real world. But now we're seeing that it's expanded to R&D, sometimes even early discovery, and then it's also kind of moved forward into commercial as well. So across many different parts of the pharma value chain. So, you know, what do you think has really been the biggest contributors to this expansion of where robo data is being used? Yeah, so like you said, it's been used in pockets for years, but what we're finally starting to see is you have a combination. So you have leadership pushing and allowing for the use. You have the FDA giving guidance and support. You have the quality of data is improving as well. And the technologies that go along with all of that's improving. And so it's just, it's become optimal. So before it was certain pockets of the organization that were actually able to use the data to inform insights. But now with all of these different factors, it's now complementing and aiding at how we actually do drug discovery in multiple different aspects. 
And then along with that, organizations are recognizing they need to have an enterprise approach to how they use this type of data and the capabilities around it. And so that's also helping being able to push it because, you know, five years ago, frankly, we started the survey, we would joke that it was a unicorn. The one, <laughs> like the data scientists were unicorns because you had to kind of have some domain expertise. You had to understand how to analyze data, manipulate data. And so now you're actually seeing a lot of purposeful hiring to find these skill sets as well as training and education too. So many, many factors, but it's, it's kind of a nice layout of everything coming together. And frankly, like the pandemic also helped accelerate this as well, mm -hmm. just because you couldn't generate data as fast, you know, through traditional methods as you could from taking it from a remote patient population. Yeah, it is really interesting. I mean, I know from my own personal experience, I joined Coder right at the beginning of the pandemic. And so, it, of course, there was a bit of time where everyone was scrambling, right? And, and the first thing you're thinking about is, okay, how do I keep my clinical trials going? But once you realize that, then it is, okay, let's step back and take a look at how we're collecting data. You know, what else is it? When, when we're forced under pressure to move really quickly, what do we turn to? And then is it possible yeah. to actually sustain those practices, even when there's less of, you know, the, the pressure of a global pandemic that's beating down on you, but can we still apply those widely? And I do think that a lot of organizations have adopted that. And we see that, you know, from our perspective as a data vendor as well, is, you know, the evolution of our data, our data models have, you know, evolved and grown since several years ago. Mm -hmm. There's different types of data that are available to us now, you know, the amount of genomic data, for example, out there is really growing and becoming more accessible. And so I think the data sets grow. We have also seen, I think, kind of a focus within organizations of rather than just having each individual functional team source right. the pieces of data that they need, right, have more of a central data team, really think about what are the needs across the enterprise and and that certainly made our jobs easier, I think, because yeah. then we're able to also get a more holistic view of what is the needs across the company and then hopefully tailor all of the data so that it is truly multimodal, right, as opposed to optimizing mm -hmm. for any one particular use case. And so I think that has all been really great movement so far. And, you know, I guess the question I have is, you know, what's the next step in terms of moving the needle further, right? Now we're in many more parts of the organization than we were before in terms of real world data. You know, what's next? Is it using it in more indications? Is it making sure that it's not just big pharma that has these, have these big real world data teams and also thinking about smaller biotech and how you really imbue this in the process, you know, kind of earlier on, no matter who you are? Yeah, so it's it's actually, it's a little bit of combo, but Within an, within an individual organization, it's actually being more structured and methodical on how you actually use real-world evidence. So the organizations that are really leading in this space are applying integrated evidence planning, which simply put, is thinking about at every aspect of the value chain, so R&D all the way through commercial, what type of evidence are you going to generate? What type of insights are you going to generate? How are you going to use data to inform what you're actually doing? And being very structured at how you approach that, because that allows you to not waste time and resources. Mm -hmm. You know, and frankly, like this can get very costly. So a lot of the push to centralize and create enterprise capabilities and look at things holistically was actually to save a lot of costs and recognize that there was a lot of 
you know, analysis being done that could actually inform the next step as well. And so thinking about that integrated evidence planning is what's really transforming and setting apart the leaders in the space from, you know, the stragglers in this space. Now, when it comes to like smaller pharma who don't maybe have or need the capabilities to be, you know, centralized as much, it's then looking and strategizing how do you leverage capabilities externally? What are the minimal viable capabilities you need? Because frankly, it gets very costly to run some of these analyses outsourced. So mm-hmm. understanding like what would you internalize? What's the minimum teams that you need? And then what is your strategy to flex up and flex down depending on when there's peaks and you need additional support versus when there's valleys? So just optimizing some of those costs around there because frankly, I mean, ROI can be a challenge to measure here, but what we're seeing is if you use this data effectively, it's significantly reducing how long it takes for you to, you know, go through IRB approvals, understand like what trial sites you should be setting up, understand where those patient populations are, you know, understanding like how you should engage with those patient populations. And frankly, every, every day that you can cut down in that process is cost saving. And so it pretty much can pay for itself if it's done effectively and it's done very strategically across multiple aspects of the drug life cycle. Yeah, I think the key is looking at it very holistically because, you know, I get that question a lot as well, which is to say, okay, you know, if we bring this data set in-house and we use it, here's a study that we want to run, but how is this going to help me? How is this going to help my costs? How is it going to help me accelerate? Yeah. I think the answer is true. This this lone study that you're considering right now is not single-handedly going to accelerate your development or, you know, provide you cost savings, right? But it's about thinking about what are all the various types of insight that you can draw from this. And so, you know, you shave off a couple of days here and there, but at multiple points throughout that cycle and all of a sudden, right, maybe you're going to market a month earlier, two months earlier. And in terms of the cost savings and the opportunity cost of not being on the market, right, that month or two earlier, that's huge there. But it's something that you can't look at, you know, kind of in a silo, right? It's got to be looking at all the different places where the data can have an impact. And when you sum up all those little days, like that's when it becomes, the value becomes evident, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's it's even more than that, though. It's like, understanding the competitive landscape, right? Like what other drugs are there on market? Like, you know, are they being successful in market? You know, we were talking on one of the past podcasts. It's like, you know, there's like 10,000 oncology trials. So if your inclusion exclusion criteria is, you know, extremely similar, you're fighting for the same patient population as well. And so, you know, understanding like, does it make sense to run this trial, you know? Are you going to be able to run it? Could you potentially augment the trial and use like an external control arm for it as well? I mean, tremendous, there's tremendous amounts of ways to measure ROI, you know, with that or, yeah, you know, even going back to R&D, like what is the burden of disease? Like how long are patients staying on certain treatments? You know, how many, like how long are the holidays that they're taking in between? Does it occur at certain points in the calendar year? I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. Lots of ways to think about intervention and to really just bring better medicines to patient populations and embed into the lifestyle that they live as opposed to trying to force them into a new lifestyle because of a disease that they're you know, facing as well. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, this whole concept, right, of meeting the patients where they are, I, I think yeah. is it's critical. It's always been critical and just remains very critical. And I think, you know, a lot of companies really do recognize the importance of that. And, and something that I've gotten a lot of questions about recently is, of course, this, how do you predict what might be happening to a patient, right? So we've got all of this data here. We can analyze and understand retrospectively what happened with the cohort of patients, but is there a way for us to kind of like build predictive models so that we can better anticipate what outcomes we might see with patients or what behaviors we might see with patients? And, and that can help us, right, with whether it's designing better, better clinical trials for them, better interventions for them, or better support for them in some way. There's always this question about prediction. And every time that we talk about prediction, Right. Then you talk about machine learning and AI and, yeah. you know, a lot of kind of technology buzzwords there. Um, and I think with machine learning, right, I mean, that is, we can think about algorithms and models that we can very easily understand. We can take apart, we can put it back together, or we can trace exactly where the logic flows. Right. But yeah. then you start to introduce AI and sometimes it can be a black box, right? I think the paper talks about this as well. And we're in an industry where it's really crucial to have provenance and to understand like what exactly yeah. happened, right? In order to get to XYZ conclusion. So what are you thinking about in terms of the role that AI has? And as we move more towards trying to predict what happens to patients, right? What is the role of AI and how, you know, does it have a place here? Yeah, so I, I think there's a lot of potential for AI. And that's something that was interesting in the paper this year was this was the first year where there was a bigger push and emphasis on the use of AI, as well as some organizations realizing the value from AI. But it's important to understand, frankly, what AI is. And so, AI, I mean, AI and simply, like, simply put, there's three types of AI. There's narrow AI, there's general AI, and then there's super AI, right? And so, Narrow AI is basically training a model to do a specific task. General is replicating a human. And super is, you know, Terminator style. <laughs> <laughs> and so, like, word AI is used so, I don't, I don't want to say willy-nilly, but I can't think of something better. It's used so willy-nilly. And so it's, it's such a hot buzzword that <laughs> people are using. Yeah. But you have to understand the reality of what AI can do and what it can't do, right? And so... It is training models and it's being able to train models on vast amounts of data. And that's where it starts to have and develop its own thinking is when it has enough data to train that model. And so a lot of people come out and they say, you know, AI is going to, to solve everything for us. It's going to tell us, you know, before anybody develops any disease, like whatnot. But you have to recognize that the development of AI has to be grounded in scientific knowledge and clinical understanding. You could have a data set and you can have obscure findings in that data set, right? That the, these models can detect, but they don't make sense in the reality of how people live or how the disease progresses. And so you have to understand the boundaries and limitations of what AI can do and where scientific and clinical evidence has to step in and, and play into that as well. So AI is like the most, having the most success in areas that you're able to combine that technical skill set with that clinical evidence point. And so it's understanding like, you know, potentially like 
where are the patients? What points across the disease progression are patients going to, you know, potentially drop out of trials or, you know, maybe patients are feeling really good after six months of taking a medication that they no longer want to take it anymore. And it's going to be finding those types of variables, but you just really have to understand the disease and the the nature of which the medication or, you know, the treatment is being provided as well. Yes. I mean, there's, there's tons that can be done in this space, but you also need data sets. You need data sets that are, you know, vast enough to be able to train these models. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm excited about the future of AI. You just have to understand like how you can use it today and decide to address use cases that are feasible based on the data availability and the clinical knowledge and relevance. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think it really does come back to that fit, right? I mean, even before AI was in the picture, there's this concept of fit for purpose data. And I think there's yeah. fit for purpose, you know, technologies and models as well. And there's some use cases to your point where it's appropriate and we have enough data to train the models and then other areas where maybe even we need to do more validation, right? Even before we get to the AI portion. We need to do more validation just on some basic assumptions that we make based on the data or algorithms that we come up with that may seem relatively simplistic to, you know, to the eye, but having to really put it through that scientific rigor so that, you know, all of your building blocks are solid before you really get to the more kind of complex neural networks or whatever it might be, right, that you're applying to see that data. But yeah, I think we similarly are really excited about that too. You know, as curators of data, like our hope is that the the data that we curate and that we put out there can be put to good use, right? And we're trying to really scale that so that you will have enough to subdivide and have a training data set and a testing data set and do that multiple, multiple times in order to start generating some of these insights. So you know, I think that's definitely something that we're working on a little bit here at yeah. Coda, but also like looking to the industry as well to really, you know, kind of take our data and take all of the various types of raw data there are and really kind of unleash the power of it, right, collectively. Yeah. So I think it's super exciting as well. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And like some of the areas too that I've seen success with this is taking data sets like Coda's data sets, but combining it with, you know, adjacent data as well. Yeah. So when that yeah. was like, Experian data and understanding, you know, credit scores and socioeconomic status and the likelihood of people being able to afford and stay on certain medications or spending habits within grocery stores, you know, and kind of combining this to understand that holistic 360 picture. And then that actually opens doors to some of, you know, the hot topic around diversity, right? And so being like, you know, certain patient populations are more adversely affected by different diseases, given like lifestyle or socioeconomic status as well. And so combining that, you could create some really cool models to determine how to best target and approach those different patient populations to help improve the diversity in your trials as well. Yeah, absolutely. That's something that, you know, we, we talk about a lot at CODA that I personally think about a lot. I, I think there's so many different ways that we can learn from these populations. And to your point, right, combine different types of data sets so that you can see the intersection of, you know, areas where it might be social determinants of health, right? How does that relate to outcomes? And it's not just about the regimens and the interventions that are given. It's about what's happening outside of that hospital setting as well. And so I think bringing all those data sources together 
hopefully, you know, starts to create a, a better understanding. But I wonder, you know, how can we bring that into the, the real crux of like research, right? If we want research to be equitable, we ultimately need to think about not just like these little things when patients, you know, a drug is on the market, we're trying to help a patient, you know, stay with adherence or whatnot. But in clinical trials over the past few decades, you know, we still haven't seen much of a shift in terms of the trials becoming much more representative and much more diverse. And so what do you think will it take, right? What will it take to kind of finally kind of crack that the code there in terms of getting more diverse representation into trials? Because ultimately that is still really one of the most pivotal data points, right, that you'll get in in any kind of clinical development. Yeah. So, I mean, the best thing is it's being talked about now, right? So mm-hmm. it's, it's actioning it. It's the exact same things that I talked about at the beginning as to why are we seeing more adoption of real world evidence, you know, in different areas of pharma. It is because regulators are talking about it. It's because leadership is enforcing it, right? It's because there's a lot of pressure and recognition. Like if you can put more diversity in these trials, it only helps everyone, right? Into the mix because different types of people react differently based on their genetic makeup to certain drugs. And so to me, it's just amazing. Like it's taken so long for people to talk about it, but I am so happy, you know, that it's happening now. And to really get that diversity into trials, you need to understand what, what patient population is mostly affected by certain disease and recognizing that, you know, in many cases, like blacks are not as represented in EHR data as, you know, let's say like, you know, Caucasian population. And so recognizing that you have to account for certain biases that exist in the data set, you know, in addition to understanding the impact of certain diseases on those patient populations, and then designing your trials to be inclusive of that diverse population. But to actually get that population involved into trials, it's going to take some time because there's a significant distrust in the system mm-hmm. because of many years of history that right. has happened you know, to those to that patient population, and you, you can't blame them. So it's going to be it's a lot of rebuilding that trust, and it's going to take more than just pharma. You know, it's going to take pharma plus advocacy groups plus you know community centers as well to to really transform and encourage people to come into trials. But I mean, also like. Aside from the paper, it's, it's the push for decentralized trials is also going to help with that as well. Because instead of having to have the means to get to certain trial sites because you're at a point of desperation, in particular in oncology, those trial sites are going to be more, you know, coming to you mm-hmm. and coming to your community through, you know, your local grocery store or your local CVS or Walmart. And, you know, where you're shopping anyway, you're going to be able to get access to groundbreaking innovative therapies that otherwise you would not have access to. And so I think that's going to help improve diversity as well. I mean, <laughs> I could go on, I could go on for a while on this, but it is, it is an exciting time that it's, you know, a topic conversation, it's a focus and that there's a concerted effort to improve this. Yeah. And I think, you know, in the, in the same way that I think COVID helped accelerate the use of real world data in a lot of ways, I think we also learned some really important lessons there too about how to get to populations, right, that may have, within reason, more skepticism of 
you know, interventions that are new, interventions that, you know, have not been tested for years and years and years on, you know, huge swaths of populations. And so, you know, I think that the community involvement, right, the going back to meeting the patients where they are, I think all of that is important. And and I think, you know, for me, I think something I've, I've learned out of all of this, right, there's, of course, a lot of systemic change that needs to happen. And I do think that, you know, similarly, a lot of those conversations are happening. But I actually recently, you know, signed up to join as a healthy participant in like a women's health study. They were trying to recruit as as many people as possible. And I thought, you know what, you know, me being of an Asian race, right, we also are, you know, underrepresented in a lot of trials as well. And, you know, I might not be contributing to any like pivotal oncology study here, but I thought, you know, one step that I will personally take in addition to, you know, kind of talking about it and thinking about it, right, is that. I'm going to put myself out there and, you know, kind of be another data point in this data set. And so I do think that a lot of the conversation around this has also influenced my personal thinking on it. And so that that was a little step that I took actually just last week. And I was like, okay, hopefully like, you know, yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's going to be like a little, it's a little thing, but every perspective, right. And kind of every angle that we're tackling yeah. this from matters. And so, you know, so hopefully it is these kinds of conversations, right, will inspire the thinking of people, whether they run a pharma company and get to make a lot of really big decisions or whether it's just an individual thinking about, okay, like, you know, what do I do for my own personal health and how do I contribute? So there's so much exciting stuff to talk about here. Yeah. I mean, it's exciting that you're participating. You know, it's a new adventure and we'll see, you know, how it goes. But yeah, I I, I think it's just important for everyone to think about it and, you know, kind of do what we can and feel comfortable with to help move that forward. So, well, we're out of time here, but I'm so glad that we had a chance to chat and kind of delve deeper into some of these topics that the paper covers. And, you know, this is going on, what, year four or five of the paper? So yeah, I'm glad that we were able to chat about this and already looking forward to year six of the paper coming out next year and see maybe if some of these things that we talked about, right, will be reality and we'll get to reflect on that again in the future. Yeah, no, but thank you for having me and thank you, you know, Coda, for participating in the paper this year. It was exciting to have a, you know, the data partner perspective and not just the farmer perspective this year. Yeah, it was really exciting to be a part of it. All right, well, thanks so much for chatting today, Carla. Thank you. We'll see you soon. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Real World Talk. For more episodes and to understand how we can all bring clarity to cancer care using real world data, please visit us at CodaHealthcare.com. We look forward to having you next time on Real World Talk.